the best of our knowledge explores topics on learning, education, and research. Coming up, the Israel-Hamas war has intensified debate over free speech on college campuses, and we'll speak with an internationally known advocate for human rights in the West Bank about how the war has affected learning and the natural environment. I'm Lucas Willard, host of The Best of Our Knowledge. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. Since it began in October, the Israel-Hamas war has killed at least 20,000 Palestinians and displaced around 2 million people in Gaza. Palestinian scientist and author Mazen Kumsia is the director of the Palestine Museum of Natural History and the Palestine Institute for Biodiversity and Sustainability at Bethlehem University in the West Bank. Dr. Kumsia is also an internationally known advocate for human rights. The best of our knowledge is Jody Cowan spoke with him about how the conflict is impacting education, the mission of the museum, and the natural environment. We do research, we do education, we do conservation efforts, conservation on the ground of endangered species, plants and animals in situ, and ex situ conservation. We do education with children. We try to to show them that they have power as children, that they can shape their own future peacefully and in a way that's uh, resistance by growing their own foods, by by fighting for their rights. Uh, This is all part of our work. Um, uh, We don't have a condition of post-traumatic stress disorder here. We have traumatic stress disorder (laughs) since it is not finished and it continues to be and there are studies, for example, that show that 70-80% of children have uh, have psychological damage that in the West would be treatable even with medicines. I would imagine it's an incredible challenge to work towards protecting the future when so many people are just trying to survive the present. That's why, you know, I say, you know, a child watching a butterfly, for me, that's a that's a form of therapy because he sees a butterfly, um, you know, eating from the nectar of a flower. And it's a, it's a really soothing image. When people are in nature, their psychology improves. So I think uh, we need to do more of this kind of work, uh, reconnecting people to nature and uh, biology and animals and plants and also make sure that they don't harm animals themselves they don't use plastics they don't use uh, fossil fuels as much as possible so this is important because when you develop caring and this is my own also view about myself when i am depressed and i'm caring for somebody who's needy or for an animal who's needy that I'm feeding an animal, then I am feeling better about myself instead of being self-focused. One of the things that I know that you guys work on and work towards is the protected area network in Palestine. 
Uh, can you explain or just kind of touch on a little bit the importance of maintaining land in Palestine and maybe the challenges to doing that and maintaining that? Palestine is an environmental decline. It's a catastrophic situation. And colonialism, the Zionist movement, and especially the Jewish National Fund has been very destructive of the environment. For example, when they uprooted uh, 530 Palestinian villages and towns in 1948 and turned over their lands to the Jewish National Fund, uh, the Jewish National Fund proceeded to uproot uh, millions and millions of trees around these villages, both domesticated trees like uh, olives and figs and almonds, but also wild trees like oaks and hawthorn and carobs, and, uh, and destroy a lot of the nature. And then in place of these bulldozed trees, they planted uh, pine trees, a monoculture of pine trees, and this to them is supposedly natural areas now, or parks as they call them, or protected areas or whatever. But those areas ended up being uh, devoid of biodiversity and having a lot of problems. Now, when Israel occupied the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in 1967, uh, just like they did with the Negev, they designated nature reserves in the areas that have a lot of Palestinians to exclude the Palestinians. And so we did some studies on this and we published actually papers around these areas. I have three papers now in press documenting in great detail about the subject of use of uh, national parks and nature reserves as a colonial tool, but not to protect nature or to protect heritage but to advance colonial projects. Uh, so I think this is important research. And I think, you know, Israel needs to be challenged on this. The West Bank is being bombed. Uh, the nature reserves in the South Hebron Hills, on top of the nature reserve, they have a military training zone where they have helicopters and military tanks training in the South Hebron Hills on top of what's called the nature reserve, or at least they use the excuse of a nature reserve to exclude people. Whereas the native people clearly love their nature, they love their country and they want to protect it. And that's what we want to do is protect real nature areas, not the ones that Israel designates to exclude us. So we, we, we actually do protect what we can. How accessible is the Institute today? I know you said that there's there's programming that is ongoing still. How much of a challenge is it for people to get to this program? Well, we are limited now. Since October 7, people cannot come from, let's say, Hebron or Jerusalem or anywhere else to visit our museum or our botanical garden or partake of our educational programs. So we become limited to Bethlehem city and the surrounding areas and the three refugee camps in Bethlehem. Um, that's in terms of accessibility to come here. But there's also an issue of accessibility to us to go to where we want to go, like those nature 
reserves that we think we should protect that are important. Israel attacks people going out of those ghettos, settlers are on the road. It's very, very dangerous, you know, for our field uh, researchers to do work. I have a project, for example, in wetlands in the Jordan Valley, uh, but for the past two months, I haven't been able to get to the Jordan Valley to do this. What does the short-term future look like for the office now? Well, I mean, we have what's called the adaptation and mitigation <laughs> programs. So we try to do what we can do in terms of studying our uh, collections that we have collected in the past, uh, insects, for example, uh, research that we can do here in our botanic garden, education that we can do here for the people of Bethlehem, uh, growing our own vegetables, so food sovereignty, uh, things like that. We have the limited land, only uh, 13 dunums or so, but three or four acres. It's not a big land, but, you know, we can talk a lot about what we are doing, but still, you know, compared to the people of Gaza, for example, the universities in Gaza are suffering much more. Three of them were already bombed. Many of their buildings destroyed. And uh, there is no classes even online in Gaza because Israel cut off electricity, internet, everything to Gaza, no water, nothing. And they assassinate faculty, including the president of one university in Gaza were just killed with his family on December 2nd. Uh, he was a very well-renowned scientist, received many awards. Compared to that, we haven't reached that level. It might come here. I suspect it will come here once I finish with Gaza. Uh, it will get to that level. They've already started in refugee camps in Jenin and Nablus and Tulkarim. They're bombing the refugee camps and using heavy bulldozers to destroy the roads and the water pipelines and the infrastructure of those refugee camps. So it may get to be like Gaza here soon. What can be done uh, to show support, to actually give support, to alleviate any of the suffering that's currently happening? I think the first thing is to get educated, get informed. I would recommend the website, which I use called ongaza.org. That's one word on Gaza, O-N-G-A-Z-A dot O-R-G. It has a lot of information and then disseminate a lot of this information to people, pressure the governments to call for a ceasefire to end this genocide. Uh, to stop these massacres that are ongoing uh, for civilians, to stop exporting weapons to Israel like white phosphorus and depleted uranium weapons that are destroying people and destroying the environment, uh, to stop uh, supporting Israel at the UN and preventing the UN from taking any meaningful action because the US has a veto power. So a lot of work can be done where people are. And if they want to help financially, they could support groups like the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, equivalent to the Red Cross, or uh, or uh, the UN uh, Relief and Work Agency, 
or um, medical aid for Palestine or many of the other groups that provide aid uh, to or try to provide aid. I mean, the problem is Israel is blockading Gaza and preventing aid from coming in. There's a lot of aid that's piled up at the border and cannot get in because Israel says no. Do you have hope that humanity and nature could live harmoniously and exist in Palestine? Well, uh, as as somebody once said, uh, uh, I have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Hope for me is uh, is that I continue to work and do my best, and that's all I can do. The outcome I cannot uh, control, of course. Uh, if genocide continues, and likely it will continue for at least a few more weeks, uh, then that's the way it is. There has been a lot of genocides in human history, like Belgium and the uh, Belgian genocide of the people of Congo, or the Holocaust of the Armenians, the Holocaust of Jews and gypsies and communists by the Nazis and many others. So I, uh, I then at least say that I have done my best. I cannot control the future. So for me, I don't have the luxury of despair. I continue to work and hope for the best, hope that my efforts do help. But if they don't, they don't. I mean, if we get into a nuclear war soon, which could happen because Israel is heavily nuclear, and, uh, you know, we could um, we could have obliteration of the human species as a biologist. And I'll say, OK, cockroaches will take over the earth. And I did what I could and humans uh, didn't listen to us. So they kept going. Uh, it's very, very dangerous. And I really, I really, really hope people wake up in the West and realize what's going on using their support, using their tax money, using their weapons uh, for a geopolitical game that nobody will come out a winner. Even the Zionists will not come out a winner. They won't have a habitable planet to live in. So, uh, but as I said, we have to keep doing what we are doing and keep going and hope for the best. Dr. Mazen Kumsia is director of the Palestine Museum of Natural History and the Palestine Institute for Biodiversity and Sustainability at Bethlehem University. He spoke with the best of our knowledges, Jody Cowan from the West Bank. I'm Lucas Willard. The Israel-Hamas war has brought with it on the other side of the globe a rise in anti-Semitic attacks and a debate over free speech on college campuses. Many activists who are rallying in support of Palestine and an end to the war say their calls for a ceasefire are being twisted into support of the attacks in Israel carried out by Hamas in October. In December, four days after a contentious congressional hearing, Elizabeth McGill, the president of the University of Pennsylvania, resigned. The five-hour hearing, which also featured the presidents of Harvard University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, centered on anti-Semitism on college campuses. McGill, like the other presidents who testified, condemned hate and anti-Semitism, but 
the academic answers in response to questions from Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York, a Harvard graduate who repeatedly asked the college presidents if calling for the genocide of Jews would violate campus rules, drew backlash from Republicans and Democrats alike. Covering the national debate surrounding speech on college campuses is Megan Zinis, a senior reporter with the Chronicle of Higher Education. We've seen a lot of college presidents and administrators since the start of the war really struggle to figure out how to respond to this. Um, there has been both students and faculty members that have criticized statements that they've put out saying that they're sort of tepid, walking the middle line that a lot of folks are not happy with. Some people would like to see institutions and their presidents stay completely viewpoint neutral on this. Others say there's no way that you can't speak out of something on something of this magnitude. And so there was definitely an act of balancing both students and faculty members, Jewish and Palestinian, have felt unsafe on campus. There's that balance between free expression and academic freedom, as you said, but also ensuring that students and faculty feel safe to learn, to go to work, to do their jobs. Um, we've seen instructors be removed from the classroom for comments that they've made. We've seen a lot of student rallies and sit-ins. And so this is something that presidents have dealt with um, and will continue to deal with, I'm sure, as long as things are, are going on over there in the Middle East. And certainly in the shadow of an upcoming presidential election year, and while there's been political primaries going on, there's been a lot of discussion in the political sphere about speech on college campuses. You've had in Florida, as just an example, uh, the changes with removing certain academic programs and reshaping campuses down there from Governor Ron DeSantis, who's running for president. Uh, so where does this current debate fit in the larger national conversation? Absolutely. There's no question that the election does ratchet up the pressures around this. And we've seen certainly a lot of politicians, both on the local and national level, get involved in this most recent anti-Semitism debate, which we can talk about more, but also broader challenges to DEI. The Chronicle has been tracking those. Um, there have been any number of um as I said, politicians on both local and national levels looking to uh, make hay out of this to, for some to, to get involved in some way. Um, and I think like, like college administrators, they are struggling to, to figure out, in some cases, where do they fit into this um, and how, how should they get involved? So in December, there was a congressional hearing and uh, there were answers given from college presidents. Uh, afterwards, the, the president of UPenn actually resigned. It seemed to me that a lot of the answers that were given by the college presidents were tiptoeing that high wire act, that line that, that you had mentioned. What can you tell me about the tone of these answers that were given before uh, Representative Elise Stefanik of New York, how they were actually handled by the college presidents? So the hearing itself was actually five hours long, but as you said, the controversy has really boiled down to this exchange that the college presidents, so Harvard, MIT, and Penn, 
all had with Elise Stefanik. Um, the presidents were essentially being asked by her about chance of intifada, which is an Arabic word that a lot of Jewish folks may interpret as a call for violence, for genocide towards Jewish people. And so what Stefanik was essentially asking was, does calling for the genocide of Jewish people violate your campus's code of conduct or they, or they constitute harassment? And the president's answers were that essentially it depends on context, depends on severity and directness. And those answers were seen as legalistic, as equivocating, as uh, really lacking empathy for the Jewish communities on their campuses uh, by some. It, it seemed like to some people, why can't you condemn genocide? That seemed like a fairly straightforward answer. If you ask folks in the expression circles, though, the president's answers were actually correct. Legalistically speaking, it does depend on context. But again, the overarching sentiment was just that they were being evasive, uh, maybe lacking compassion, and unable to give what seemed like a straight answer to the question. And as I had mentioned, this led to Liz Miguel, the president of UPenn's resignation, and there's since been an interim president uh, named to replace her. But what can you tell me about uh, McGill's answers and the pressure that she may have been facing before the congressional hearing earlier this month? So all three presidents' answers were fairly similar. And so it wasn't that McGill um, said anything that was particularly um, more controversial than either the other presidents. But as you said, there had been pressure on her uh, campus culture and community at Penn had really been mounting for months surrounding the war. And that goes back to August. Um, there was a literature festival, a Palestinian literature festival that was hosted on Penn's campus. Some of the guests at that festival had a history of making anti-Semitic comments and uh, donors and students and faculty were upset about that. Um, McGill ultimately decided to let the festival proceed. Uh, she and the administration saw this as a defense of freedom of speech, of academic freedom. Um, that, of course, didn't please everyone. Then you have October 7th, increasing uh, donor pressure, board pressure, uh, folks calling on McGill to resign for, for months, really, prior to the hearing. And then she did what seemed like she did resign suddenly in a matter of days after the hearing, along with the board chair. But it really wasn't the context of those, those months of pressure leading up to it. So what do you expect moving forward? Um, are we going to see on a national level new speech policies on college campuses? Is this scaring college presidents at all uh, about how they may be thrown into the limelight on the political stage? Well, certainly we saw that the three college presidents uh, at Harvard, Penn, and MIT, you know, you had legislators calling for their resignations. And so that example, I don't think, inspired confidence uh, among college presidents that were not involved. But also there are very clear um, avenues to further pressure. So all three of those institutions, Harvard, Penn, and MIT, are now subject to a formal investigation by 
the House Committee on Education and the Workforce, which is the, the committee that held the hearing. And that committee has also said pretty directly that other institutions who um, come under scrutiny for anti-Semitism should expect to be subject to that same level of federal scrutiny as well. Um, so there's definitely that more direct path to um, to scrutiny as well as just um, increased pressure from donors, from prominent alumni, as we saw at kind of particular, um, I would not be surprised if other institutions face similar degrees of pressure. So Liz McGill at Penn has resigned, but we've spoken about the pressure on the presidents of Harvard and MIT. What's in the future for those individuals? The, the board at MIT actually said pretty shortly after the hearing that Sally Cornbruth, their president, had their full support um, at Harvard. We saw a similar statement come um, in support of Claudine Gay, the president there. But that statement was slower in coming. It looked like her tenure might be in danger for a little bit longer. And there were also plagiarism allegations against her that were rolling in and, and sort of influencing how that was seen as well. Um, so while both of those presidents seem to be secure in their jobs for right now, I'm sure that uh, there's a degree of looking behind their backs at what happened to McGill, um, certainly for those two as well as for presidents around the nation. Now, what about pushback from students in the face of possible new uh, rules or guidelines regarding speech on campuses? Uh, are we already seeing pushback from students around the country? Absolutely. You know, as I said, there have been protests and sit-ins uh, by students since the start of um, the Israel-Hamas war. And, um, you know, students, even chapters of pro-Palestinian groups have been called to uh, to disband or to stop meeting. And so there's a pretty direct um, implication for students as well as, um, as I mentioned, the, the threat to, at least they feel, to their safety, to their ability to learn. And so if there are policies that uh, continue to, as they say, crack down on that, um, students are, I imagine, not going to be happy with that in many cases. Now, Megan, what are you going to be paying close attention to in the new year uh, with regards to higher ed and this continuing conversation about free speech on college campuses? You know, I think that the the conversation around free speech on college campuses has been a hot button issue as well as the Chronicle has been around, but certainly this is an especially tense moment for that. I would expect that after finals and folks going back for the holidays, when we start up the spring semester, there's going to be an increased attention to this. And um, certainly, I think, as you said, political pressures as the election approaches, um, I'm sure there will be continued movements from, from both students and faculty. Uh, classroom activity is, I think, something to keep an eye on. As I said, we saw instructors be removed from the classroom for their comments. So there's that academic freedom um, angle to it. I think there's uh, there's there are any number of places to look for the influence of this in the spring semester, and we'll certainly be following that at the Chronicle. Megan Zinis, a senior reporter with the Chronicle of Higher Education. 
This has been The Best of Our Knowledge, episode 1736. The Best of Our Knowledge is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan. The latest on all national productions programs is available via the Airwaves newsletter and our flagship station's website, wamc.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard.